everybody here. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in uh, chapter uh, 61. And so if you guys would uh, turn there, uh, and this is the book of Isaiah towards the end. The book of Isaiah is uh, written probably 500 to 700, maybe even longer before the, uh, the birth of Christ. And uh, the, the prophet Isaiah writes to his people, the Israelites, judgment, uh, encouragement. He also describes a king, a king who would come in power and in victory, but also a king that would come as a servant and would actually suffer and be wounded and crushed and die for his people. We see that in chapter 53. That's actually what we meditated upon on Good Friday. We went through that passage and just considered what Christ has done for us in that. And so the book of Isaiah, though, turns and he gives us yet another prophecy of this coming servant king. And that's what we get here in uh, chapter 61. And so uh, hopefully it'll be on the screens for us this morning. And starting in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and they, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall build up the city ancient ruins, and they shall ra- raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. And they shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And I will faithfully give them their recompense. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, And as a bride adorns herself with with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts. And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is um, inspired. 
by you. It is the word of God. It is infallible. It is um, inerrant. Cannot be proven wrong. And then when we come to your word, we should know that we should be transformed. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak by your Holy Spirit through me and through your word this morning. We praise you. Praise you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, have you ever made a mess or a problem so big it seemed beyond repair? Have you ever just created a a little mini disaster? One time, we were living in Columbia, South Carolina, and we were preparing to move and sell our house. And to do that, you have to fix the house up to put it on the market. And so we were doing that. We put in new carpet. We painted new linoleum in the bathroom. We did all kinds of stuff to beautify this house. Well, I had one little last thing to do. And this was like a day before I was to literally drive out of town and be gone for a month. And I had this one little task. And we had our air conditioning that actually was up in the, in the attic. And for, for years, the main drain that would drain the water that comes off the air conditioner had been broken. And so we, it had been operating off a backup drain. And I was okay with that. But selling a house, it wouldn't be. And so I got up in the attic, and, I, was, and I, I set out to fix this pipe. And to do that, you cut the pipe, and you got to re-glue this pipe. Well, the pipe had, so that I, I had to learn about plumbing and piping and all this stuff. And I discovered that there's two pieces to this process. There's this, little, there's this purple primer, and there's this glue. Have you ever done this? And you use the primer, and you put the glue on, and you set it back to pieces. And, I, and it looked amazing, and it worked. Water flew through it. It didn't leak or anything. And I was really proud of myself. Got some of my stuff together. And as I was making my way out of the attic, I had left that little purple primer can sitting next to the attic stair open. And my foot tapped that little can. And that can bounced down the stairs, the attic stairs. And it was like slow motion. It was like, no! And I saw it leave. And I saw it go out of sight. And I looked over the edge, down into the hallway, where there was new carpet, new paint, and right next to the bathroom with new linoleum floors. And all I could see was purple. It it was like a purple bomb explosion went off in our hallway. And I had this moment where I was just like, I want to die right now. And I went down and I'm trying to clean and and I'm like rubbing the carpet. and It's it's so acidic, it's eating the carpet. And I I remember my wife saw my face turning red and smoke starting to come out of my ears. And she said, go to the garage. You're going to scare the kids. And I just went in there and freaked out. But have you ever had a problem that bad? Have you ever created a problem that you just think, there's just no way this is ever going to be fixed? This is beyond repair. And many of us face problems like that. Maybe it was face situations in our life where we're like, there's no way around this situation. 
Or if we look this broader in our world, and you say, you know, we look at the, the issues, the political issues, the race tensions, poverty, crime. Look at places in the world like Syria and other places where there's just, it just seems to be a war stalemate. It's just like they're just going to keep fighting until there's no one left alive. And you think these problems are just beyond repair. What are the problems, issues, and crises that you may or may be facing in your life? What's the mess in your life? Well, here in this passage, Isaiah 61, we see God promising to fix all the problems. This is a promise saying God is going to mend all of these issues and problems in the world. And my favorite part about this passage is down in verse 8. And it says, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. What that's saying is, God refuses to leave this world and our lives the way they are. God refuses to leave it standing. And he will eventually act. That, I love that part. And then... If you know much about this passage, you've probably heard the beginning part of this passage. Because Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of his ministry, goes into the synagogue, opens up Isaiah 61, and reads this very passage. Saying, this is what I'm here for. This is what I'm about. This is my mission right here. And then he says, right after that, today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus is saying, by his coming, what he's going to do in his life, he is going to begin and inaugurate what is going to happen throughout this passage. And we're going to see three things that get laid out in this passage, okay? That first of all, God sent Jesus to be a rescuing Savior, to create a restoring people, to enjoy His redeemed world forever. He's sending a rescuing Savior, create a restoring people to enjoy His redeemed world. So, first of all, we see Jesus declaring He's coming as a rescuing Savior. And the first way that He rescues is that He, he, he came... To rescue us from our sorrows. Look at what he, he talks about. Look, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the, the, Lord of the, year, the year of the Lord's favor. So he's come to bring good news to the poor. And that word can be translated afflicted or humble, low position. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted. And one person put it this way, that Jesus, in this sense, to bind up the brokenhearted would mend the hearts of those who are so broken by life they despair of having any hope. The the problem is beyond repair. And then in verse 2, he's come to comfort those who mourn, who grieve. And so the, the beginning part of this 
says loud and clear, God deeply cares about your sorrows. He cares about the the hurt and the heartbreak in your life. This word heartbreak, it means heart, the word heart, and then the word that combines with it, it's kind of a crunch word in, in the Greek. The other the word that means to be crushed and ground down to powder or to be torn apart by wild animals. And he's, so God cares about our heartbreak. But here's the thing. God sent Jesus to do even more. He sent Jesus not just to alleviate our worldly sorrows and our worldly concerns and our worldly uh, problems. You know, some problems are obvious, right? When you kick a can of purple primer down the stairs and it... That was... There's no getting around that one. There's no... Hey, let's just put a rug out there. Nobody will notice the purple walls or the purple bathroom. Now, I mean, we had, it was a problem you could not ignore. But other problems are, are less obvious. So if we want to go talk about houses and stuff, what about, say, like a problem like termites? They can go and they can do their work and the damage can, the problem can exist and you never even know it's happening until potentially too late. And some of y'all are starting to think maybe I should, you know, get our inspection again. Some problems are obvious, some are less obvious. Reminds me, um, I was reading recently, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia again. I, I, like, I read them every few years, I just love them. And, and um, in his book, The Silver Chair, you have uh, two little kids who end up um, in Narnia, and, and they, are, they go on a search for a, a lost prince. Well, they end up going down into this underworld, and they meet this guy that's like a, a leader or a king or something. And, um, and they meet this guy in, the, in this underworld, and he tells them, you know, for one hour every day, I have to be chained and bound in this silver chair. Because when I, when I'm, when I, in this one hour every day, I, I'm told that I become insane, and I become violent, and I could kill people and do terrible things. So they, they must chain me up in this chair so that, uh, that during this time I won't hurt anyone. Well, they chain him up, and the hour comes, and the two children, curious to what would happen, go into the room where he's at. And he's screaming at them, please, release me, unchain me, I am... I am lucid, I am clear, I am normal. And, and he says, in the name of Aslan, please let me go. And the only reason they would let him go is because he said the name Aslan. And Aslan told them, that, the great line, that if he would tell them, that if, he, that if somebody said that, do what they said. And so they unbound him. And it turns out that, that he wasn't insane during that one hour. That one hour was the one time of the day that this prince wasn't deluded, clouded, and, and um, uh, held captive by this, um, this witch, this uh, 
green serpent witch had placed a spell on him and would have him chained in this chair once a day so that he couldn't free himself from her spell. And I think that's a, a good analogy for so many people. I think most people. We are bound. We, are, um, we all experience a blindness, a captivity in which we think things are normal. We think they're fine. Or the problem is outside of us. We need a new location. We need better finances. We need healthier relationships. We need new politics. But the reality is, like this prince, we're, we're all held captive and, and, and we're all held under a spell. And every once in a while, we get a little glimpse out of it. And we realize, we're captive to our selfishness. We're captive to our narcissism. We're captive to our desires. The Bible calls this sin. And the dangerous thing about it is, you don't see it. It's a, it's a call a blind spot. The worst problems are the problems you can't directly see most of the time. We see the effects of them. Or, but the, the nature of our selfishness and sin is to tell ourselves that we are okay. And that we got this. And that's not what's happening. We see the great news here at the end of verse 1. It says, Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus came to free us, to give us liberty from our captivity and to, and to open the prison gates. But what's interesting here is in the Hebrew, you, it says opening the, of the prison to those who are bound. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they call this the Septuagint. I know y'all didn't need a history lesson. But you got to listen to this because that's the Bible Jesus was using. And, and that's what he quotes when he opens... And that's at least what we get recorded in Luke's gospel. And, and the words are, are slightly translated different there. And it says, instead of um, that, that uh, we were uh, freed from prison, instead it says, recovery of the sight to the blind, or the opening of the eyes to those who are blind. And here's the thing, though. That's an easy transition in, in, in biblical thought, because captivity and blindness very often go hand in hand. Do y'all remember Samson? The great king. They cut his hair. What did they? They gouged out his eyes. Because if you want to hold somebody dangerous, really want to keep them safe, blind them. And so what's, what's being proclaimed here is that we're going to be freed from our captivity, which is in very much the same way a blindness that we miss where we are. These verses led Charles Spurgeon to say, how often is the mental eye closed in moral night? And who can remove this dreary effect of the fall but the Almighty God? Here's the bottom line. Jesus came to save us from our sorrows and our heartbreak 
But more importantly, he came to free us from the captivity of sin in our lives. The destructive power that blinds us and tells us everything's okay. It, it, it inoculates us. It numbs us to the reality of the, the, the terror that sin really can be. And so he he's comes first as a rescuing Savior to rescue us from the captivity of sin. But he does this for a reason. So as a rescuing Savior, he, he's moving and, and beginning to build a restoring people. So that's the second thing we see here. A restoring people. Jesus came to save us to be a restoring people. And so that's the reason he... So we are... Here's the thing. We are called to be rescued. And then in being rescued, become rescuers and restorers. We, come, we are rescued to be rescuers. So he puts it in verses 3 and 4. We're rescued so that we might be called oaks of righteousness, planted in the world, in the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they should build up the ancient ruins, that they should raise up the former devastations, they should repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So there's a mission to be done. He restores them that we might be oaks of righteousness. And that's as good as it sounds. You know, big, hefty oak tree. Planted deep, strong, safe, and, and providing. That's what uh, God's people are to be. Planted, strong, immovable. And then we are also to be going and, and restoring what is broken. Fixing and reaching the lost. Building up. And this isn't a, uh, you know, all this build. It talks about all the building and things going on here. Um, it's not saying we should go out to Home Depot and get some tools. It's saying that all that's been ruined and has been, dest- been destroyed and corrupted by sin and sorrow, that it's our job to bring light into these things. And so in verse 6, we are to be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. And this doesn't mean we wear fancy clothes and a special collar. Um, we're not, you know, we're not to be God's, every one of God's people are to be priests and ministers, oaks of righteousness, rebuilding what is broken down. The reformers called this the priesthood of the believers. So Russell's not the minister. You are. And in our church, I'm not the minister. I'm the equipper. I'm the teacher to help you be ministers and priests. Here's the thing, though. I really love this part about this passage. Something really remarkable in this passage is that God has chosen to use the very things that are destroying us, breaking our hearts, and have held us captive as instruments of restoration. He's going to take our ashes and make them beauty. Paul David Tripp, um, one pastor and author, um, put it this way. Let me find it. It should be on the screen for you all as well. Here it is. God takes... 
the disasters in your life and makes them tools of redemption. He takes your failures and employs it as a tool of grace. He uses the death of the fallen world to motivate you to reach out for life. The hardest things in your life become the sweetest tools of grace in His wise and loving hands. Be careful how you make sense of your life. What looks like a disaster might in fact be grace. What looks like the end may be the beginning. What looks like hopeless may be God's instrument to give you the real and lasting hope. Your Father is committed to taking what seems bad, so bad and turning it into something that is very, very good. God taking what is broken in our lives and the lives around us and uses them for glory. This is what he means when he says, I will give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. God is going to take the disasters of your life and make them tools of restoration. I was uh, hiking recently uh, with our family up in North Carolina. And it was, we were shocked because we were heading down this trail and all of a sudden, all the pretty foliage and beautiful trees and flowers and bushes disappeared. And it was like we were walking on the face of the moon. Black everywhere. And it was the recent, there was still smoke rising in places. The recent forest fires had raked through the area. And it looked like utter desolation. We, we might have been going like uh, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Mordor or something. And the kids were playing in that and as we were going. And, uh, but here's the thing. What's cool about it is um, out of the burnt, charred, decimated forest is actually the beginnings of life. It is actually, um, the destruction actually becomes the catalyst for new life. There's a process with a lot. Did y'all know this? A lot of the trees have to have the destruction. Did y'all know that? It's a process I learned called serotony. Y'all are going to be smarter after this. And the process of serotony, a lot of trees, pines, elms, a whole bunch of uh, types of trees, their cones and their seeds are so sealed tight with resin and, and um, uh, sap that they need intense heat to break open so that their seeds will spread. And so actually, these trees sur- grow and, and thrive out of burning, charred desolation. And, after, and out of the charred desolation and the brokenness, Maybe the brokenheartedness in our lives comes the fuel and the fertilizer for God's grace to sprout out. He will give us a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. God is going to take the disasters of your life and make them tools for restoration. So, for example, I I have her permission. My wife. When she was a teenager, was being rebellious, she got pregnant. 
And to her at the time, that was, life's over. It's done. And so, and she ended up choosing to keep him. And she will tell you today that God used that little boy in her life to draw her to Jesus like nothing else. And after she married this weird youth pastor guy that looks like a construction worker, she found that her story became an instrument of grace. She could share her brokenness. She could share God's grace in that brokenness. And, she could, and that, that became an immense tool in her life to share the grace of Jesus. God is going to take the disasters of your life and make them tools of restoration. So that's our calling then. So verse 4, we're to, people, we're to be people that build up ancient ruins, raise up former desolations, repair the ruined cities, devastations of many generations. And like I said, this isn't saying we need to go out to Home Depot and get some hammers and stuff, although it can mean that sometime. Okay, what it means is that we are to live out the gospel Redeeming our culture and even our physical world. We are to push back the darkness. Where there's injustice, we stand up. Where there's poverty, we help. Where there's broken homes, we fix them. Where there's broken hearts, we speak these beautiful words. He binds up the brokenhearted. We become instruments of grace. We become tools for God. And we do it because we have a great hope. We do this. We become become agents in an army for God because we know He is preparing for us a redeemed and restored world. And God saves us and sent us on Jesus to prepare us and to prepare this world for the consummation when God brings all things and makes them right. So Jesus, and in this passage, there's great significance when he says that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What that phrase is tied to is in Israel, every 50 years there was a year of jubilee. And in the year of jubilee, everyone who had gone into debt was freed of their debt. There was forgiveness of debt. There was forgiveness of times of crime. They were to, and anyone who had to sell off their land because they were in poverty were were able to buy back their land. And they were even to not work their fields for a whole year. So it was this year of of forgiveness and grace and and leisure and pleasure and hope and restoration. And that year of Jubilee began to become for the Israelite people a little picture of what was to come. The great Jubilee. What Jesus would usher in. The Messiah would usher in this Jubilee that would last forever. Jesus uses this to describe His ministry. Jesus came to usher in this glorious kingdom. And we see it described throughout this passage. You you probably saw it. Binding the broken hearted. The blind see. The captives free. Righteousness and goodness reign. 
things made are wrong are made right, honor instead of shame, wealth instead of poverty, peace instead of struggle. Righteousness and justice are reigning. We see in Revelation, we get a little glimpse of the end. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and, and will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things had passed. And the one who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And this is what Jesus inaugurated in that synagogue. He says, I am beginning this process. And he would do it. Not by riding, like we saw last week, riding in on a horse with armies, shining armor. But he would ride in on a donkey, preparing himself for crucifixion. He would free us from the bonds of sin and death and guilt and judgment from God by hanging on the cross on our behalf. And the day we celebrate, three days later, broke the power of death and began the great resurrection, which one day will be fully consummated in every one of us, everyone we've ever known, everyone we've lost, everything will be restored and resurrected to new life. By his death, we're set free by the bondage of sin and death. And we are declared sons and daughters of God. And by his resurrection, we are commissioned as priests into his project to restore all things. So, what is your problem? What is your problem? We say that sometimes, don't we? But I mean it now. What is your problem? Is it clear to you? Let me say, if, if it's not, ask, just challenge you to ask God, reveal to me where I'm blind. Reveal to me that I am, in fact, broken. And that I have, in fact, sinned against you. That I am selfish and narcissistic. And I'm controlled by my desires. And He will show you. Ask Him to unbind you from deception. To untie you from the silver chair. And those of you I know in here who are brokenhearted, mourning, grieving, struggling, life in a broken world is so devastating. This is a promise. Charles Spurgeon asked it this way, would, would Jesus bind your broken heart? Would he help you? Yes, that's what he came to do. Now, we've already said, some of it, God is using. It's the fire in the wilderness. It is, it is the destruction that he is using to create glory and beauty in you. 
But here's the thing. The hope of the resurrection is not just that one day we'll be kind of, we can just forget all this stuff. But I don't know if y'all noticed. It said that he, in the end, he will give full recompense. In other words, extra payment, a repayment for all that we have faced, all that we had suffered, all that we have endured. Recompense. I love the word. But then he goes on to say, and they will receive a double portion. Did you catch that? A double portion. And so, as Paul would put it, there is no comparison for the glory that will be revealed. Our present sufferings cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in the consummation. And so, we hold on as people with hope. We hold on and we, we, we know that God is restoring and binding and making all things right. So let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father.